0: Between 1787 and 1868, um, around about 800 convict vessels left Britain and Ireland to sail to Australia, on the other side of the world, a voyage that took, um, on average, four months to complete. And they brought 160,000 individuals as convicted, unfree, penal labourers to Australia. This is the route that those voyages took, um, initially hugging the coast of Africa and then swinging out right the way across the mid-Atlantic to the coast of South America before picking the roaring forties up and zipping past the Cape of Good Hope, although some stopped off, uh, across the Southern Oceans at the bottom of the Indian Ocean to Van Diemen's Land and New South Wales, where some of the later ships went to Western Australia. In most people's minds, a voyage of that length that's transglobal, that goes through the tropics, that involves unfree workers, must be associated with a great deal of misery, pain and suffering. And there's one very important writer about everything that I'm going to say. There are some things that are easy to me- measure, and there are others that are not so easy. I can't tell you much about the psychological impact of that voyage, but I can tell you a great deal about its impact on survival rates and the health of the prisoners that undertook it. Now, it's impossible, I think, to talk about or even to think about a voyage involving unfree labour without thinking about the slave trade. Many people... Particularly, convict ancestors, or um, descendants, sorry, who um, try to piece together the experience of their ancestor, assume that the voyage to Australia was similar to the slave trade, that the death rates must have been horrendous, that the experience must have been awful. And this is a, a famous um, um, anti slavery um, poster of the slave ship Brooks, showing the tight packing on board. Um, the Brooks. The death rate on British slavers in the 1790s can be calculated. It's a kind of like horrible thing to turn that experience into numbers, but the death rate was 32 per thousand slaves embarked per month of the voyage. That death rate was a considerable improvement on what had happened earlier on. It was um, brought down as the result of putting surgeons on board the slave vessels which was something that was mandated by British British Parliament uh, because of the activities of the anti-slavers. We can compare that with the death record on board convict ships. It's not difficult to do, and in fact it's been done in the past, in the 1980s, by Ralph Shlomovitz and John MacDonald. So here's the death rate on Australian convict vessels. It started quite high, 17.25 deaths per thousand per month, but that's much lower than the slave trade. A large part of that high death record was the, the second was due to the second fleet, where a third of the convicts died during the voyage, and substantial numbers died afterwards. Interestingly, the second fleet was um, the ships that were, were hard for it were all slaving vessels. And a lot of the crews had been involved in the slave trade. But the death rates on the first and third fleet were much lower. And as you can see from this, By 1815, the end of the Napoleonic Wars, the death rates on um, Australian-bound convict vessels had fallen to extraordinarily low rates. That decline is generally associated with the introduction of what's called the surgeon-superintendent system. After 1815, every convict vessel which sailed to Australia had a surgeon superintendent who was naval-trained placed on board who was in charge of health and discipline. One of the other big changes was that male and female voyages were segregated. So female convicts sailed out on dedicated female ships, which is rather handy for our purposes as well. It allows us to measure mortality on female and male voyages separately. We should also, I think, say that There are some people who have argued that the certain superintendent system may not have been as important as people have thought in bringing those death rates down, in that a similar thing happened on board the Hulks. Now, the Hulks were dismasted warships in which male convicts were housed prior to transportation, and they had very high death rates, 23 per thousand, getting up towards the 32 per thousand per month for slave vessels. But those dropped, in fact, to lower than the um, the, the experience on the convict voyages um, early on. And then they rose again in the 1830s and 40s, largely as cholera cholera, um, swept through them. So it's possible that the low rates of death on voyages to Australia reflect the better health of convicts when they were embarked. Um, And that's something which needs to be teased out. I want to try and put those low death rates into um, comparative perspective, and I'm going to do that by showing you the mortality profile for men and women who moved as steerage passengers across the Atlantic at the same time. So these are English, Scottish, and Irish migrants. It's not not famine data. um, um, Passengers moving in um, non-famine periods um, across the Atlantic to ports like New York. So this is the age-specific mortality rate measured in deaths per 1,000 per month for men and for women on immigrant ships. These are convict rates by comparison, men, women. So that is the lowering that um, in, in, in your chances of death that convict vessels somehow managed to, um, managed to conjure up in the nineteenth century, now there's quite a lot of interest in this, because it's part and parcel of a larger conundrum, which involves death rates and life expectancy, which has puzzled medical historians for quite some time. Now, this is the, the so-called McEwan thesis. Now, if we were to go and take a really, really big view of things, um, a million years ago, life expectancy for great apes, um, or for early man, would we? Estimate being about the same as for great apes. So about 20 years at birth. We know that life expectancy doubled um, with the advent of Homo sapiens. So that they had a life expectancy of about 35. And this remained remarkably stable until the second half of the 19th century when life expectancy started to improve dramatically and it has doubled in the last 160 or so years. Now, the big issue with this is that we cannot attribute this to breakthroughs in medical science. So if you look at, for example, the introduction of the first generation of antibiotics, sulfur drugs, this didn't occur until the mid-1930s. So long before the incidence of many diseases for which antibiotics are now thought of as being your number one control mechanism. So something else has to explain the improvement in life expectancy in industrialised nations, this this mortality transition. So it's very, very interesting that a group of marginalised working class people on a voyage to the other side of the world show very, very early signs of that transition. So the, the convict voyage, if you like, becomes interesting in a wider context because it is possibly the leading edge of a wider transition which is then generated on into society and I think that there are two things that are really really um, important about convictships and one is that both the people and the space is very public space is public property and the convict is public property too so there's nothing to stop a surgeon from interfering with a convict's life or very little that they can impose their will upon a convict in a way that they can't upon a private individual, um, including a private passenger on a migrant vessel. And the second issue is that there's an environment on board a convict vessel which the surgeon can can have some kind of control over. There's limits to that control. But it's very different from, let's say, a working-class housing suburb in London. So the argument goes that what really is important here is the way that surgeons are able to impose public health measures upon convicts. It's, if you like, the leading edge of the welfare state, and we're seeing it amongst prisoners because they can't stop it happening. The state is experimenting with prisoners in a way which is beneficial to the prisoner in terms of life expectancy, but it involves a great deal of intrusion that a laissez-faire 19th century government couldn't get away with in other contexts. But having done this, they can then make the argument that it's good for the wider public to use some of the things that have been used on prisoners in other contexts. Now, there are some um, problems with this. Um, The first is that surgeons weren't particularly good at diagnosing things in the 19th century or treating them once they diagnosed them. So most of them were anti-contagionists or um, exponents of miasma theory. And my favourite example of this is John Stevenson on board the Catherine Stewart Forbes where there was a cholera um, outbreak. And Stevenson argued when they arrived in Australia that there was no need to burn all of the bedding on board because cholera was produced by, I quote, an unknown state of the atmosphere acting on constitutions susceptible of its influence, and that it is not communicated by either the effusia or the touch of a person affected. In other words, he thought that, um, that whatever was responsible for cholera was spread through the atmosphere. And I'll talk a little bit more about that, that it wasn't passed by physical contact, and um, certainly um, not um, by bodily fluids he conceived it unreasonable to suspect that a malignant atmosphere could be conveyed to this distance through so many variations of temperature. In other words, that if you went through the tropics through into a cold environment, you would um, get rid of many diseases because the atmospheric conditions would change. And if we go in a little more depth into what surgeons like Stevenson tended to think, they divided the causes of ill health into two general categories, pre-existing causes and exciting causes. The pre-existing causes were all too obvious on board a convict vessel. They were the disorderly lives that the idle poor who made up the cargo had led. So on the East London, Edward Cordwell justified the 19 deaths among the 133 female convicts on board. This was by far and away the worst voyage that we looked at. It's a real outlier by pointing out he went through in detail the broken and dissipated habits of every single woman who died on board. He blamed them. So Catherine Murray had led a dissolute kind of life and had been in a state of intoxication prior to conviction. Eleanor Cooney was of weak and nervous temperament and filthy habits. Margaret Cowan was of weak, nervous temperament and was said to be addicted to the free use of spirits and tobacco and other filthy habits. And it goes on and on and on. Now, Cordwell also said that exciting causes were important as well. Damp environments, poor ventilation, rotting or putrid matter, anything else that prevented the circulation of air. And the danger was that if you couldn't get right on top of those kind of conditions, that what would happen is that people who have pre-existing courses would be more disposed to sickness. So this is why it was very, very important upon a convict vessel to make sure that you controlled the environment on board. Uh, this is the, the layout of um, a convict vessel. The military guard and the crew and the officers are all in the aft of the ship. But I think the most interesting thing here is where the hospital It's located, the hospital was always located in the bowels of the ship for one very important reason, so that the fresh air could be circulated through it. The movement of the ship was supposed to push fresh air through the hospital to make sure it was the most ventilated place on board so that um, it would break up any um, um, bad atmospheric conditions. The surgeons imposed a rigorous system of hygiene and discipline on board the convicts. In fact, Colin Browning, surgeon superintendent on the Elphinstone, um, said to his, the convicts on board, in fact, the first words he said that he said to them was, This day commences a new era in your existence. Everything will change from now on. The convicts were mustered at first light and washed in seawater trike twice a week. So they were bathed in cold salt water twice a week. At six bells, all of the bedding was passed up, and if the weather was good enough, it wasn't only aired on deck, it was stored um, on deck during the day. After breakfast, the decks of the prison and the ship itself were were, um, scrubbed clean. Now, most surgeons didn't use water, they didn't like using water because they thought that damp environments produced fetid conditions. So they tried to dry scrape them with holy stones and then they were sprinkled with chloride of lime or chloride of zinc afterwards. Some surgeons went to extraordinary measures. My, my favourite one was um, um, a, sh- a voyage in which there was an outbreak of erosophilus, a, a kind of skin complaint. and The surgeon got vats of vinegar and plunged Heated shot into them to vaporize the vinegar to try and get it to go um, all below decks as a disinfectant. Um, Surgeons also, as well as issuing anti-scorbotic measures in the form of um, lime juice, also tried to make sure that convicts were active the whole time. So if they weren't at work doing things like picking oakum or coiling ropes, then um, they organized, surgeons organized um, dancing on deck. So they tried to find fiddle players and even boxing matches. I now want to um, talk about some of the data that we've got and what we're trying to do. We're trying to go beyond some of the existing studies. And the existing studies looked at death rates on board voyages. But there was no individual level data. We just knew that 19 deaths had occurred on the East London, for example. We didn't know where in the passage they had occurred. It was... Impossible also to tell much about pre- or post-voyage experiences because that individual level data was missing. So you didn't know where the convict had come from, who died or survived, or what happened to them after disembarkation. So obviously it's important to know how many died in the months after disembarkation. So did the voyage, in fact, have a a sting in the tail? Was it deadly for convicts after arrival? Um, There was one other existing study which was quite interesting. Um, A guy called R.V. Jackson who looked at a whole group of female convict ships and he did have individual data but he just looked at women and he speculated that what he found an increase in um, ill health, reported ill health, over the course of time. So voyages that went later had a greater number, a greater amount of sickness on board. And... He speculated that this was because they carried more women. So there was a relationship between the number of people per tonne of vessel. And loads of people have said this about the slave trade. The problem with the slave trade was the dense packing on board. It's the lack of space. Remember that image of the brooks with everybody lying next to each other. So he thought that the death rate on male vessels would be higher than the death rate on female vessels because there were more men per tonne than there were on female vessels. So we wanted to investigate all of these things and a lot more. So we looked at 289 voyages sailing to Van Diemen's Land, um, now called Tasmania, between 1818 and 1853, which carried just over 60,000 convicts, 48,000 men and just over 12,000 women. And the women were really important. It was really good to get a large sample of women. But we also um, spent a lot of time going through port records in um, Tasmania to try and find out who else was on board because you couldn't really do an analysis of how densely packed the ship was just on convicts. Um, one of the things that we were very conscious of was that female convict vessels did not have a military detachment, but male convict vessels did. So that increased the loading on the male convict vessel compared to the female convict vessel. So we found on those voyages almost exactly 10,000 crews sailed 7,400 soldiers, 1,300 soldiers' wives, and 1,800 soldiers' um, children. And all of those extra military are on the male vessels. On the female vessels, there were 700 um, other passengers. Free people who wanted to go to Australia on a combat vessel almost always went on a female combat vessel. And 750 of their children. And really interestingly the female convicts brought nearly 2,000 of their own children with them. So all of these individuals had not been counted in any other previous study because people hadn't been able to calculate who exactly was on board. So in fact, we were actually looking at a total um, population of nearly 84,500 individuals carried to Van Diemen's Land. The record groups that we had were um, kind of interesting, took a lot of time to put together... The most important record was the Surgeon's Journal for each voyage. So we only looked at voyages where there was a Surgeon's Journal. And at the back of the Surgeon's Journal was a sick list in which they summarised every single episode which had ended up with the convict being entered into sick bay. Now, there's a lot of variation in this. In fact, I should qualify that. We think that's what's going on, but there is a lot of variation. So, um, we have some vessels in which um, nearly 300 people are entered into sick bay, and others in which six are entered into sick bay. So, there's a lot of variation between vessels. We also knew a lot of, da- lot of things about each vessel. We knew its tonnage, we got its Lloyd's insurance rating. For some of them, we knew whether they'd stopped off. Um, at least half of the vessels made the run to Australia without stopping, or four months at sea without stopping at a port. And we knew the duration of the voyage. We also did a lot of work to reconstitute the record of death under sentence in Australia. There was no single death register. So we went through a whole series of records and transcribed every single death in them and then merged them all together and then checked them against other sources to make sure that we had... Um, a good ret- In fact, we, we, our return is better than the colonial government's estimates of deaths. We've got a higher death rate, so we think we've we've pretty much got the lot. So, what did we find? Um, now, I've done this at a very, very small font, so I'll explain what we've, we've what we going what's going on. We've got deaths per thousand going uh, on going up, and then along the bottom axis, we have deaths in port and then during the first, second, third, and fourth quarter of the voyage, and then over the first year after arrival in Australia. And I'm really sorry about this, but I've got boys in blue and girls in pink. It's just easier to read. So these are the blokes. Now, these death rates down here, 0.7 per per, um, thousand per month, is extraordinarily low, and there's a very good reason for that. The surgeons were um, told not to take on board anybody who they didn't think was going to last the voyage. So they're doing their job. That death rate is low because they are rejecting people who are going back to the Hulk and presumably dying in the Hulk. So it's artificially lowered. And then you can see that the death rate climbs steadily throughout the voyage. And it's indeed the first two months in Australia as are, as we suspected, deadly. And indeed, they are more deadly than the voyage itself. So there is a sting in the tail. But then death rates decline. And after the end of year one, they are comparable, especially if you take out the um, executions. They are comparable to the death rate for um, 19th century um, men in their um, mid-20s, early 30s. So they, they they are equivalent to death rates for... British and Irish men in the 19th century. There's no sign here of a kind of like deathly labour camp horror story in Australia, which is interesting. This is the female record. Now, the female record is to a certain extent um, inflated by that one nightmare voyage to the East London, but not greatly so. Uh, there are three things which we think are very, very interesting here. The first is that the death rate in port before the vessel sails is higher than for men. So there's something going on there. The women are in a worse state than the men before they even get on the ship. Second, the female death rate during the voyage is considerably worse than the male, and that gap opens up during the voyage. For some reason, the voyage to Australia was worse for women than it was for men. And you might remember that when I showed the, the data for transatlantic voyages, Uh, for migrants, free migrants, the same was true, that women were at more risk of death than men. And we want to try and find out why that is. And then look what happens when they hit land. Almost immediately, the female death rate falls below the male death rate. So women are at less risk on land. Now, one of the things that was really interested us about this is that a lot of the literature on both the slave trade and indentured labour, another form of unfree migrant voyage, um, is split. There's a huge argument in the literature, and there has been ever since the 18th century. Um, Between those who argue that high death rates in the plantation world were to do with the experience of being at sea and the experience of hitting a new disease environment, and they're not due to the exploitation of the plantation regime. So, um, in other words, that the death rates that you experience on land are out of the control of plant- plantation owners. they to do with the voyage. And, of course, the, the opposite is also argued, that high, high deaths in plantations are to do with exploitation, particularly of weakened bodies when they get off the voyage. And so this pr- provided an opportunity to test this. So how much of that adjustment is because of the differing experiences of exploitation in the colony of men and women. So we wanted to try and tease all of that out. Uh, I've only, thankfully, got one of these tables. Uh, My colleague, um, Rebecca Kippen, is the demographer on the project, so she does all of the regressions. Now, with a regression, all you need to look at is something that's got a star on it. So uh, the starred things are significant. It means that um, one star means that there's a... um, a 5% chance of that thing, that correlation occurring by accident. And two stars mean 1%. uh, And statisticians generally take those as being measures that they can um, believe in, if you like, that you can be confident that results didn't occur by accident. So what have we got with this table? We wanted to just try and test to see whether the data held together. We looked at the length of the sick lists, and we found that they decreased with the experience of the surgeon. So the more voyages to Australia on a convict vessel, the worse notes the surgeon kept. So the more experience they had, the less likely they were to enter um, a morbidity episode into the record. So that was worrying. Um, We also tested to see whether they were actually any better at keeping people alive, and they're not. They just... Record-keeping just gets worse. Um, We also found that the length of the sick lists increases over time. So this was the finding that Jackson had as well. We think it's record-keeping. We don't actually think that this is a, um, a, a substantial finding. We also found that there is a relationship between the length of time that a convict is recorded as being sick and the death rate on the vessel and on land. In other words... That's the important finding. It suggests that what is being recorded does is an accurate reflection of the death rates. So if there's more sickness on board a vessel, there are more death rates, there's more, there's more deaths, and that there are higher deaths amongst those convicts when, they, when they're landed. So the, the data looks robust, despite those other problems. Now, I kind of like to summarize what's going on here. Again, blue for boys pink for girls, and I'll go through this. we got the number of voyages, 208 for men and 81 for for women. The length of the voyage is about the same for both groups, 116 days for men, 118 for women. There's no difference between those two. It's not longer voyages, which is disadvantageous for women. And indeed, we found that there was no relationship between the length of the voyage and the death rate. The monthly death rate was the same on a long voyage, as it was on a short voyage. We also um, found that there was no difference in the mean age on admission. So the women dying or or getting sick on the female voyages are not older or younger than the men. But when we looked at the admissions to hospital per 1,000 convicts, 293 admissions per 1,000 on a male vessel, 431 on a female vessel, that's the difference... The women were appearing in sick bay much, much more often. And the days that they were listed as sick was again much higher. 3,500 compared to 5,500. And their month, the monthly deaths per 1,000 convicts at sea, 2.6 for men, 4.5 for women. Now this is where it all starts to get really weird. And when you start to think why it is that you spend... Weeks of your life in an archive collecting data when you get results which suggest that you have completely wasted your time. Um, The number of passengers per ton was 0.62. 0.62 passengers per ton on a male vessel compared to 0.52 for a female vessel. So Jackson's right. Male vessels have got more convicts per ton than female vessels. So you should get a higher death rate on the male vessels. The male vessels are more tightly packed, but they've got a lower death rate. It's very counterintuitive. The male vessels are also older. They're less kind of like seaworthy than the female vessels. They've got a lower insurance rating. Even the insurers don't like them as much as the ones used on the female vessels. Now, the only thing that the men seem to be uh, having their favour is the prior experience of the surgeon, the surgeon. Um, had um, 1.63 um, voyages compared to 0.83 on the female vessel, and we know the reason for that: it's because female vessels were considered to be easier to manage. So greenhorns get them, and then they migrate onto male vessels. We wondered whether deficiency diseases accounted for the difference. So were female convicts worse fed in jails? And this I think is quite a complicated story. Uh, And, of course, the easiest way to measure this is by looking at scurvy. And so when we looked at scurvy, we found that there were 25.5 scurvy deaths per thousand on a male vessel, but only 10.5 on a female vessel. So women less likely to get scurvy, more likely to die, but not of scurvy. Now, there is some hint in the literature that scurvy is a disease that men are particularly prone to, and nobody knows the reason why. So this might be physiological rather than... Um, something to do with pre-voyage treatment. But I'll talk a little bit about that in a while. The big killers on board, well, the biggest killer was diarrhoea and dysentery. Um, We found that there were 50 and a half cases of diarrhoea and dysentery per 1,000 men and over 80 per 1,000 women. There's a big difference. And the diarrhoea and dysentery cases were responsible for... Um, a lot more deaths, nearly twice as many deaths on female convict vessels than male convict vessels. Female convict vessels were less hygienic than male convict vessels, is the bottom line. So the surgeon isn't managing to maintain hygiene on board female convict vessels. Uh, We tried to kind of like tease this out. The first line of attack was to see if there's something going on before the convicts are embarked. So that pre-voyage difference, where women are dying at a higher rate right from the beginning, suggests that there might be something going on. That The men maybe have better health care before the voyage, and so therefore there's nothing the surgeon can do about it. And somehow this is translating into more diarrhoea and dysentery cases during the voyage. Men were housed on hulks, like this one, for several months before the voyage, where there was another naval trained surgeon, female convicts came through the local jail system. So there's a completely different administrative route. Now, we went and looked at the rations provided in jails and hulks, and we found a considerable difference between the county jail ration provided to women. And the diet that the men were getting on the hulks. So the bottom line here is that the second from the bottom, the hulk calorie count, is nearly 3,000 calories per day. So if you've got... Well, if I was on 3,000 calories per day, I'd be even fatter than I am. Um, Women, by comparison, in the county jails were getting just over 2,000 calories per day. There was a 1,000-calorie difference between the two. Now, the reason for this is because men... ...in hulks were expected to work at heavy labour in the docks. So they were getting a ration that was non-punitive because of the work measure. The female convict diet, like the male convict diet in regional jails... ...was calculated to be worse than the workhouse diet... ...in order to stop people from committing crimes to get relief. So we have evidence that the women were in a worse shape... ...when they got on board just because of the diet... Now we think that they might be less prone to scurvy because their major thing they're getting is vegetable soup whereas the men are getting salt beef and potatoes and potatoes do have vitamin C in them but only if you keep the the skin on. So if they're peeling the potatoes, the vitamin C content goes right down. Now we also wondered whether there was a relationship between the distance that a convict had to travel to the vessel and the morbidity rate. And lots of surgeons say this. They say that those women who come from the county jails, particularly in Yorkshire and Lancashire, have travelled down on coaches, are in a really bad state, particularly in winter. And so we wondered if they were more likely to be sick on board the vessel. Uh, the, The little ship things, is where the ships, actually, female combat vessels, sail from. And so we split the whole of England, Scotland and Wales into zones... And we did find a relationship, but it's not statistically significant. It is true that women from the London area are less likely to be, di- to be sick, to be entered into sick during on the voyage. But it's only slightly less than Zones 2, 3, and 4. And Zone 5, which is Scotland, are the least likely of all. Now, the Scottish women were um, conveyed to London, to the Thames, and all female convict vessels from England left from the Thames. Um, by mail packet, so they'd already have one voyage. And we suspect, and um, this is true in many um, um, UK issues, that Scotland was just much, much better administered when it came to jails. There's very, very good reason to think that Scottish jail rations were higher than English jail rations. And so that's why the Scottish women have lower um, morbidity.